to pause from there for a moment to examine the doctrine of Scripture, examine it in good detail. We, we learned last week in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but love rejoices in the truth, and that got me thinking about Pilate's famous question, well, well what is truth? If love loves truth, then where do we find truth? Indeed, that perhaps is the most important question you will need to answer in all of your life. What is truth? Where can it be found? Today's culture doesn't seem interested in such questions. In fact, philosophies will both claim that we can't know truth. It's unknowable. And even if it could be known, there is no absolute truth, which is an absolute statement that there can't be absolute statements. It's not, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't stack up with reality, and being told that there is no truth or you couldn't find it even if there was truth doesn't help you at night when you can't sleep because your conscience is burdened. Everybody knows that there's truth, that there's right and wrong, that there's more to this life than simply can be tested and touched in a laboratory, morality, right, wrong, conscience, all of these things assume the existence of a spiritual realm and they imply the existence of absolute truth somewhere. But modern man wants nothing to do with it. Indeed, not merely modern man. If you look at 2 Timothy 3, Paul describes the situation in his day which is strikingly similar to our day. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, Paul says to his disciple Timothy, Understand this, that in the last days, that's all the days since Jesus, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That was then. Strikingly similar to today. Avoid such people, Timothy. For among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. That's, they're, never, they're never finding it. They're always looking for it. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, that's Pharaoh's uh, magicians, so these men also oppose truth, men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not go, go very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was of those two men. But you, Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which were persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's Word for us today. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we have just sung that you would speak Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Plant it deep within us. Shape and fashion us. Use it in the hands of your Holy Spirit to make a holy people. Speak, O Lord, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Today, as I said, I'd like to begin laying some deep footing, some, a solid foundation for our doctrine of Scripture. Paul, his phrase in the beginning of verse 16, that all Scripture is God-breathed. I'd like to camp out there for this morning and to think critically about this statement. Some of you, perhaps raised in the church, have never ever wrestled with doubt surrounding God's Word. You read what it says, you believe from an early age that the Bible was God's Word. Inspired by the Lord and therefore trustworthy and true at all times. And I am thankful that you believe as such. But I also want you to be patient with me today as we take a slower, deeper, theological look at the doctrine of Scripture. Because there are others among us who have never thought critically about the doctrine of Scripture. And indeed still others wrestle with it to this day. Some people interested in the things of the Lord struggle with how the Bible can be both God's perfect word and man's word at the same time. Indeed, even believers struggle with some of the details about how God portrays hard things like the military conquests in the Old Testament, the killing of the Canaanites, the the virgin birth of Jesus. And so the the next few sermons, I'd like to wrestle honestly with these things so that we can grow in our confidence from God's Word as truly what it is, the Word of God Himself. And so today I'd like to ask and answer a couple of questions. The first of which is, what is Scripture? That is, what things ought we to consider to be Scripture? He says, all Scripture is God-breathed, and so what's contained within the category of all Scripture? In doctrinal terms, talking about the scope of the canon. Canon being an older word for the the benchmark, the rule, the standard. What is the measuring line by which we determine what is Scripture and what is not? What writings are to be considered canonical? And therefore, what are the extra-canonical, the things outside the scope of Scripture. Some would simply say that canonicity is bestowed upon a writing from the outside. For example, the Roman Catholic Church. They would say that the Pope and his cardinals are the ones who finally determine what things are to be included in the sacred writings. Protestants, however, especially Baptists, have never thought that. Rather than believing that the the church is what determines what is canonical, Protestants have always instead believed that the church merely recognizes those writings which are already themselves inspired and therefore canonical. 
It may seem like a slight point of difference, but it is a very important difference because it shifts the authority in these discussions from the church or an institution or a pope to the writings themselves. The New Testament writings are canonical because of what they are, not because the church gave them permission to be. The church isn't the one that looks at them and says, yeah, they look good enough, we'll let them in the Bible. They are themselves inspired, and we recognize them as such. So what writings are to be counted in the category of all Scripture? Well, we can say pretty easily that Paul's writing here assumes the Old Testament. Speaks of Timothy being acquainted with the sacred writings. Well, what, what, what writings were those? Well, that's the Old Testament. The word here is graphe, the writings. It's used throughout the teachings of Jesus and the rest of the apostolic writing to include the Old Testament. And the Old Testament itself has within itself its own conception of canonicity. That is, you read often in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord. Many other similar phrases that these writings are from God themselves. And, and it's similarly a worthwhile study for you to read the Gospels and ask yourself, what did Jesus believe about the Old Testament? You'll quickly notice that Jesus considered the Old Testament to be God's word and therefore authoritative, trustworthy. How often did Jesus cite the Old Testament? A lot. How often did Jesus hit the Pharisees with the question, have you not read? Are you not familiar with the sacred writings? It's interesting that Jesus, the source of all truth and the ultimate authority on the planet, cites as his authority the previously revealed word of God. Not that he's abstracted from that authority, but he's teaching, he's instructing. Don't you guys know what's in the Bible? Don't you know what's in the Old Testament? The New Testament's use of the word scripture and then phrases like law and the prophets, it is written, God says, scripture says. All of these things point to an understanding that in the mind of the New Testament authors, the Old Testament is God's word. So Jesus and the apostles treated the Old Testament as God's word and therefore canonical. But what about the New Testament? Why do we consider the New Testament books canonical but not other books? Why not Homer's Odyssey? Why not the Iliad? They're inspiring. Good question. Let's build towards an answer. First, if we read carefully in the New Testament, we can see within the New Testament authors an understanding that their writings were on par with the authority of the Old Testament. For example, John begins his gospel with Old Testament quotations using the phrase, it is written, it is written, it is written, citing the Old Testament. And then in John 20, he says, these things are now written so that you may believe and by believing have life. John's allusion there to the sacred writings is surely not accidental. Similarly, we can look in Hebrews 2. We have the argumentation that the lesser authority of the law given through the angels gives way to the greater authority of the gospel given through the preaching of the apostles. Further, listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. 
And so if the apostle's spoken word was to be considered the word of God, then why would the same not be extended to their writing? The church has believed for 2,000 years that such canonical status is extended to their writings. We see among the New Testament authors an awareness of their writing, and their writing is canonical. It's on par with the authority of the Old Testament. Indeed, they are heirs of redemptive revelation. 2 Peter 3.16 Paul says that Peter's writings have some things which are hard to understand. But people twist his words quote, like they do the other scriptures. Peter understood Paul's writings to be on par with the rest of scripture. So to sum it up, Jesus and the apostles viewed, viewed the Old Testament as God's word, holy scripture, and there exists within the New Testament before the closing of the canon already an awareness that the apostles were writing scripture on par with the authority of the Old Testament. You see the, the footings, the foundations that I'm laying, big building blocks. I may have lost some of you in this. Come back in. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, please. Chapter 13. If you have your Bible, I strongly encourage you to follow along because we're going to build an argument about revelation, the, the, God's revealed word from John starting in chapter 13. And what I want us to see is that Jesus' teachings anticipated what I've been arguing. Jesus makes clear a pattern of revelation predicting the upcoming canonicity of the apostolic writings. And if I can oversimplify, the pattern of revelation goes like this. Father, Son, Spirit, Apostles, Church. That's our, that's our stepping stones. The word of revelation from the Father to the Son, to the Spirit, to the Apostles, to the Church. John 13, verse 20 Truly, truly, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus describes himself as the sent one. He's sent by whom? By the Father. And to receive Jesus is to receive the Father, the sender. Turn over to 14, chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus again. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So what Jesus is saying here is that the sender, the Father, together with the Son, will send the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit's job, one of his jobs, will be to aid the apostles in remembering everything that the Son has revealed. That's important when we're thinking about the trustworthiness of Scripture. What if the apostles got it wrong? The apostles got it wrong. The Holy Spirit failed. God failed. Moving on. Chapter 15. Turn the page again. John 15, looking at verse 14. Jesus speaking to the apostles. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. It means nothing is lost in the translation. Jesus doesn't fumble the ball coming from the Father, passing it to the apostles. 
Everything that the Father would have us to know has been revealed by the Son, and He's already promised the sending of the Holy Spirit to make sure the apostles will remember everything that He said. See how a cumulative case is being built for the trustworthiness of Scripture. Father reveals to the Son. Son reveals all that the Father would have Him to reveal. Father and Son send the Holy Spirit to make sure everything revealed gets remembered. John 15, 26 now. We see the apostles' role more explicitly. Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And also you, apostles, will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And so Jesus' plan has been that he would use the apostles as the next vehicle of divine revelation. They will bear witness by the Spirit's power, to the Son, the Son who reveals the Father perfectly. Father, Son, Spirit, Apostles to the church. Lastly, turn over to chapter 17. Chapter 17, looking at verse 8. Jesus is praying His high priestly prayer to the Father. He says in verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave to me, and they have received these words. And they have come to know the truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus says, my mission, my mission of revelation is complete. I've given them the words that you would have me say. He gave the words and the apostles received them. Again, in verse 14, right down the page, Jesus says, I have given them your word. The Father's word has successfully passed on to the apostles. Again, verse 20, same chapter. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for the future Christians, the future disciples who will come to faith through the word of the apostles. Jesus has successfully completed the mission of revealing to the apostles the word of the Father. Now he's praying that the apostles' word would likewise be effective in bringing salvation to those that come after them. That's the church. It's the final link in our chain. Father's Word revealed by the Son. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to guide the apostles to remember what Christ has revealed. And the apostles write down that revelation carried along by the Holy Spirit so that the church would believe. Father, Son, Spirit, Apostles, Church. That's, that's my quick crash course in the doctrine of canon, the doctrine of Scripture, the canonicity of Scripture. I hope I haven't put too many of you to sleep, but these are important questions. The world wants to undermine, indeed, going back to the garden, what was Satan's first trick? Has God really said? Is this really God's Word? Your children, day one of freshman philosophy 101, will be a, they will hear an attack on God's Word. And if all we just say is, well, it's just, it just says God's Word. And that's the extent of our wrestling with the doctrine of Scripture. They will be ill-prepared to answer some of these questions. And so we need to think deeply about these things. You can't simply turn to a single verse in the Bible that says, these are the New Testament books that are canonical and these that aren't. The scope of the canon is a cumulative theological argument that I think is consistent. So moving on. All Scripture is God-breathed. We've talked about 
what is Scripture in terms of what should be considered in the category of Scripture. Now I want to look at the next question. What is Scripture like? Perhaps what are the qualities of Scripture? If I may be provocative for a moment, I'll make a statement that some of you are going to wrinkle your nose at. Nowhere in Scripture that I've found does it say that God's Word is inspired. Rather, if we look at Paul's words carefully back in 2 Timothy 3, it says that God's words are breathed out. They are expired. God doesn't inhale. Rather, He exhales. He breathes out. He speaks out His Word. The word here, theopneustos. God breathed. God exhaled. And I make that point simply to say this. I don't think the, the apostles were simply inspired to write like you and I might be inspired to write some poetry looking at the Grand Canyon. I don't think that's what inspiration means in, can in canonical terms. Rather, when we speak about the Spirit's in or Scripture's inspiration, we mean really that God has breathed out his words to the apostles. And it's to be taken, Theopneustos, in a, in a passive sense. God is the active party. Scripture is exhaled through him. It's similar to what he says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1. where God says, I've put my words in your mouth. Or when God tells Moses that, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'm going to put my words in your mouth and Aaron's mouth when you go talk to Pharaoh. I'll give you the words. That's where we get into some more practical aspects of this doctrine. Indeed, some sweet aspects of the doctrine of Scripture. If it is true that Scripture is God's Word, then what can we know about the nature of Scripture? Or to say it another way, God's character becomes the starting point for our understanding of the character of the Word. If Scripture is God's Word, then we know something about the character of Scripture. For example, Scripture is authoritative because it is God's Word. It's authoritative. It, it bears the status of being an authority. Indeed, the final authority. Because it is the Word of the universe's highest authority. We already said how Jesus assumes the authority of God's Word. Have you not read? Do the Scriptures not say? He's appealing to the authority of God's Word. These appeals are commonplace in the New Testament. They assume that the Word of God possesses authority. Not merely some authority, God's authority. We should also note that Scripture's authority isn't a bare, a naked authority subject to flawed interpretation. I mentioned this in my class this morning. What does Satan do when he's speaking to Jesus in the wilderness? He quotes Scripture. But Jesus' response to Satan reveals that Scripture must be properly interpreted. Scripture wrongly interpreted and wrongly applied ceases to be God's Word. So just because Scripture is God's Word doesn't mean that we don't need to work hard to rightly interpret it and apply it. 
Now, a word needs to be said about the scope of Scripture's authority. Scripture is authoritative, but it's not authoritative in every area of knowledge. What chapter do I turn to when I need to figure out how to change the oil filter on the car? Does it make sense? When I want to learn algebra, do I start in Psalm 119? No. Scripture is authoritative in the matters that it addresses. It's relevant to every situation, and it's authoritatively relevant to every situation, but it doesn't address every situation, every context, in a uniformly direct way. Sometimes Scripture speaks directly to something, like sin. Sometimes it only speaks indirectly to something, like algebra. Let me state it another way with the help of Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite theologians. He says, the scriptures are like a stone thrown into the water, creating a whole series of concentric circles around the entry point. Scripture's authority dominates the whole of life, but it does so in different ways through its entry into the human situation. In some areas, the authority is immediate, it's direct. In other ways, it is indirect, mediated. He says the computer programmer, who's a member of God's church, sees Scripture as his or her final authority. But that authority functions in different ways. It's not diminished in any sphere. It is one's authority in the fellowship of the church, but it's also one's whole approach to computer programming will be dominated and influenced by what God's Word says. We do not read the Scriptures to learn computer programming. Because we realize God has not given them in the form of a textbook for such a purpose. And biblical authority is not compromised one iota by recognizing this principle. And so we need to see that Scripture is always authoritative, but not uniformly, directly applicable in every situation. Related to that, interpreting passages of Scripture rightly assumes remembering where we are in the storyline of Scripture. Scripture is written within the context of redemptive history, moving from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Some later passages of Scripture develop, fulfill, even supersede earlier portions of Scripture. And that's the way that God has designed it. And it does not undermine the authority of the canon to say that not all portions of Scripture are enforced today. The easiest example is to look at the dietary laws of the Mosaic Covenant which do not carry final authority for New Covenant believers today. We're not bound by most of the book of Leviticus. All of Scripture is authoritative, but that authority is to be shaped by the flow of redemptive history. And we don't have to be ashamed of that. It is a lazy accusation that your children will probably hear in their freshman philosophy class that Christians are inconsistent because they ignore portions of Scripture like the food laws and they eat shellfish and they wear clothing of mixed fibers and whatever else. They say the Bible outlaws those things and they do it so they're hypocrites. Perhaps this is impatient of me, but I like to respond to them that, well, a freshman level class in hermeneutics, in, in the interpretation of Scripture, would be able to address that issue as the church has done for 2,000 years. It does not undermine the authority of Scripture. Indeed, I confirms it. it confirms it 
when we rightly interpret Scripture according to the entire canon of Scripture, giving attention to the flow of God's redemptive plan and where we are in it. Moving on from Scripture's authority, I'll discuss one more quality of Scripture. Then we'll make some applications and get to the gospel. Scripture is not only authoritative, it is reliable. Scripture is reliable. We might say trustworthy. Again, we get to this point because of the origin of Scripture. That is, Scripture is reliable and trustworthy because it is God's Word. It's trustworthy because God is trustworthy. It's reliable because God is reliable. Scripture's character is grounded in God's own character. Sometimes theologians will speak of the infallibility of Scripture, and the logic is pretty easy to follow. God is infallible. Therefore, what he's going to say is going to be infallible. Scripture is spoken by God. Therefore, God's word is infallible. Scripture is infallible. It's a contradiction to say that an infallible God would have a fallible word. Scripture all over endorses the reliability, the trustworthiness of, of God's word. Pastor Jim Read from Psalm 19. Listen to the adjectives again that the psalmist uses. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The rules of the Lord are true. We could go on and on. Perfect, sure, right, pure, true. The unanimous testimony of Scripture is that God's Word is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. So by way of application, what, what do we do with this? What do we do with this doctrine of Scripture? How should it impact our lives? Let me close with a few quick points. We'll have a lot more practical application in the coming weeks, I promise. I had to lay some deep doctrinal footings today. Forgive me. First point is really a question. If what I've said is true, that Scripture's character is derived from the character of God, then what does it say about us when we refuse to believe God's Word? What does unbelief in God's Word say about our view of God Himself? It can say several things. If we refuse to believe God's word, even just a portion of it, then we're saying either God is good, but he's unable to make an infallible word. So he's either inept or incompetent. Or we're saying that God himself is not trustworthy because his word is not trustworthy. That's the only two options to justify the unbelief. Either God was unable to perfectly deliver a word, or he perfectly delivered an imperfect word. Because he himself is imperfect. You see the logic there. Second observation. Scripture teaches us that unbelief is deadly. Unbelief is deadly. Doubting God's word was Satan's first tactic in the garden. It remains his first tool today. He injected doubt into Adam's mind. Did God really say? 
into Eve's mind. And the result of that whole episode was Adam's death. And not merely Adam's death, but the death of all of his children, which includes us. We will die. The same fruit of death is seen in the whole world today. And those that refuse to believe God's word, Scripture tells us, store up wrath for themselves. Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They will not retain the knowledge of God. They push it down and they cover it up. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, Romans 1 says. Sinful men and women all over the planet are refusing to see the truth of God found in creation and refusing to accept the truth of God revealed in His Word. And they're earning wrath for themselves. That's the, that's the stake of this conversation. This conversation is not ultimately an academic, intellectual exercise in, in knowledge and epistemology and all this philosophical stuff. If you don't believe God's Word, you will go to hell. You are storing up wrath for yourself. The wages of sin is death. And just like Adam, we are sentenced to death for our sin apart from Jesus Christ. Eternal hell. Forever punished for our sin. But that leads to our third and final point, which is if unbelief brings death, then belief in God's word will bring life. Belief in the message found in God's word. Belief in Christ If unbelief and unrighteousness bring death, the good news of God's word is that belief in the work of Christ brings life. Romans 3.28 says that one is justified by faith, by believing, apart from any works of the law. I'm not telling you to go out and clean yourself up and be a better citizen and stop sinning. I'm telling you to stop first and to believe. To believe in this message. Cleaning yourself up and trying to do good moral things is not enough. Giving your money away, resolving not to yell at the kids anymore, reading a bunch of religious books, none of these things will save you. One is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. In fact, apart from faith in Christ, all of these vain attempts at good works are simply us trying to be self-righteous and do nothing but further our own condemnation. But Christ's offer to you, to every single one of you, is to believe, believe that He was sent by the Father. This, the Son of God, came to die in the place of the ungodly. He is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. Trust in this Christ and you will be spared. That's what God's Word, God's perfect, trustworthy, reliable, authoritative Word says to you. Believe. Paul says in his previous letter to Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and deserving to be accepted by all that Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's us. He came to save us. This is a fitting summary of the entire word of God that Christ came down to do what sinners could never do and died as a substitute for ruined sinners. The second Adam came, and he did not fail where the first Adam failed. This is the offer for all who would believe. 
This word, this, this offer, this picture is on display in another way this morning, and that's at the table of the Lord. God's word is being proclaimed to you this morning, not merely in print, not merely audibly, but visually in the Lord's Supper. The bread and the cup picture for us the word of God that Christ died for sinners. His body and blood was broken. His body was broken. His blood was spilled so that you could be spared and that you could be sustained by His death and by His resurrection. This is God's word to you. If you are trusting in Christ, if you're part of Christ's bride, the church, then join us partaking in the Lord's Supper this morning. If you're like the saints in Acts 2, devoted to God's word, to fellowship among the body of Christ, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to come. But if you have not yet come to Christ, then let these plates pass. This table is Christ's word of love to his bride, the church. Come to Christ. Obey him in baptism, and then you can join us at the table. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have revealed to us of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has died in the place of sinners, that he has taken away the burden, the consequences, the judgment, the wrath that was earned up for those that would believe in him. Make your word effective this morning, Lord. Take these elements at the table and use them to build up your church, but also send your word by the power of the Holy Spirit, to convict of sin. Work in the hearts of our people and of those that are listening. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.